I really felt like my career had to be perfect. Every decision had to be perfect and it was all mapped out and I couldn't make any mistakes. And then what you realize when you look back and you go, wow, I just spent 15 years with this plan and it didn't work out. Should I have listened to other job offers or opportunities? I think the biggest advice is, you know, go out and have fun in your career and go do things that you think that make sense. Don't always worry about what other people are going to think when they look at your resume or your professional journey. Stock market, corporate finance and entrepreneurship are all the careers up for discussion on today's podcast. Our guest today is a first generation college graduate. He has a bachelor and master's degree in finance from San Diego State University. He's also a chartered financial analyst charter holder. His first job was working in the stock markets. After that, he got his master's and had a successful career working for the largest software companies in the field of corporate finance. But then in 2019, he unexpectedly found himself having to look for a job. Frustrated with the resume and job application process, he launched Syzygy to help billions of people and today we are going to talk all about it. It is my pleasure to introduce Tony Malls in today's podcast and discuss with him the journey of his job. Also, if you want to support us, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and press the bell icon too. Hey Tony, welcome on to the Career Show. Good morning. I hope you're having a great week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's get right into it then. So do you want to introduce yourself for my viewers in less than a minute? Yeah, sure thing. Hi, everyone. My name is Tony Malls. I'm born and raised in San Diego, which is in California, which is in the United States. I have a bachelor's and master's in finance, received my CFA, uh, worked 20 years in finance at some pretty big software companies like Intuit and FICO. And about a year ago, I launched my own startup called Syzygy. Well, super excited to have you here. Uh, Syzygy is through the platform we met, and we will get into it in a second. But since you said you got a bachelor's and master's degree in finance, I want to start off with that. Your career journey has been special because you've been through two crashes, the dot-com bubble and the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Let's talk about the dot-com bubble first. Do you want to explain how the dot-com bubble affected your job in the financial markets? So I graduated in 2000, uh, the year 2000, with a finance degree from San Diego State. And like it is today, back 20 years ago, it was tough to get a job. You had a resume and a job board and fingers crossed that uh, you can get an interview and eventually get a job. Well, that happened to me about four or five months later. I started at a company called TD Waterhouse or what is known today as TD Ameritrade. It's this huge brokerage. And when you first start at that job, you have to you know, you have to get your trading licenses. So I received my series seven and 63. And then I was excited to start trading and, you know, working with clients and all that stuff. And right at that time, the dot-com bubble burst happened. And what that meant is, I don't know if everybody remember how the first month was with COVID with the stock market. Well, that's how it was for like a year. And every day people lost so much money. They were buying on margin, which is borrowing money to become more leverage. So <laughs> For every dollar the, the stock goes down, they lose a couple dollars, as well as option trading as well. And after about a year of that, uh, I decided to quit that job and go back full time for my master's degree. Mm -hmm. I want to get into your master's and what happened after that. But usually what people do when they enter the stock market as a career is they execute trades and they execute their options, right? 
Do you want to talk a little bit about that? How was that job for you? How did they do it at TD Ameritrade? Yeah, so you know, back in 2000, a lot of people didn't really know the internet, right, or or how to use it. So even though people could buy stock uh, or do transactions online, very few did. They called you up to process those trades. So they could call you up and say, "Hey, I want to buy a." a hundred shares of Microsoft, right? So you would go in and process that trade for them or, hey, I wanna buy a, a call, a March call at, at 120 bucks for Microsoft. So, so that was a lot of fun processing those trades. I think back then the stock market was on such a rise for the last two years, people did a lot of day trading, right? And day trading becomes dangerous. I even did day trading during my <laughs> master's degree. I did, you know, over $4 million of transactions of, you know, being in and out of positions. But, um, you know, day trading becomes tough and people were really trying to time the market like that. And eventually the market started crashing and the people that were long or, or owning positions lost a lot of money. Well, don't know if it's, it's a pandemic, it's a crash, but I don't know if that's what gets people day trading because I did the exact same thing during coronavirus pandemic, and it's and it's funny. But but you got your master's degree, and I will talk about what happened after this master's degree. But I want to touch on the financial crisis since we're already talking about the dot com bubble. Did your experience with the dot com bubble help you dealing with the financial crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine to deal with the markets again? Yeah. So, you know, back during the first period, I was at a, at a you know, brokerage house, right? So that's just buying and selling stock pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2008, I was at a company called FICO. Uh, FICO at that time was, let's call it $800 million company of about 3,000 employees. Well, 80% of their revenue is in banking or financial institutions. So all of a sudden when that crash happened, they had such... Uh, industry concentration that all of a sudden, you know, their revenue started hurting. So there, it's a little bit different because it's actually for a company that sold into banking and and eventually FICO had to lay off, let's call about 25% of their workforce and their revenue went down about 25%. So, so that was a bit rough, you know, where, you know, one day you'd show up and all of a sudden there would be a lot of layoffs, right. Or, you know, no bonus payouts, uh, very few promotions. Mm-hmm. What was one of your biggest learnings from both these crises? If you had to pick one of your biggest learnings, yeah. Well, I think from a stock market perspective, is you know, I you know, I still believe you know, dollar cost averaging, right? Putting money in every two weeks or or whatever you can do. It's very hard to time the market, you know, especially you know within within a day of trading. So I'm a huge advocate of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then secondly, from a corporate perspective. I think sometimes, you know, you always got to try and diversify your revenue streams in different ways, as well as make sure you have great contingency plans uh, when things start going, you know, going the wrong way. What are the first three to five levers that you can start pulling when all of a sudden it looks like the economy is going to slow down? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a that's a great learning. Now, let's come back to to your story. You got your master's degree, started off in the stock market. But then you went to a few other companies and you did corporate finance. Do you want to quickly explain your different roles at different companies? So it can be the stock market, the corporate finance role, and how these roles were different. Yeah. 
Yeah. And real quick, you know, after I got my bachelor's, I worked about a year in the stock market at TD Waterhouse and I went in and did my master's full time. And I think that experience of actually being in the workforce really helped me during my master's program because I learned a lot. It was awesome and stuff. And, you know, when I graduated, I I felt really ready to, uh, you know, hit the ground running. Well, you know, it took another few months to, to find a job and and that job was with a company called Anavistus. And what they did was strategic consulting for Fortune 500 companies. So it could be companies like Boeing, Caterpillar, Kimberly Clark. They would procure Anavistus to work on a strategic initiative. Hey, we're thinking about building this type of, let's say, airplane or this type of tractor or entering th- this type of market. And this was really cool because it'd be a two, three month project. You roll up your sleeves, you work with uh, the client. And, and then the final output would be about a 30 to 40 page report on, on strategy and financials and stuff. And what that company would do is then take it to their steering committee or investment committee to see if they can get funding to move forward with that project. So I did that for about a year and a half, really cool job. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I was making a you know decent amount of salary at TD Waterhouse. I get my master's and then my job at Anavisis was at the same salary after after my graduate degree. So sometimes that's how it works. But you know that that job at Anavisis was a lot of fun and it gave me a lot of confidence working with very senior people that were clients uh, and providing you know really good value to them. After that, you joined FICO. Is that correct? Yeah. So FICO, I joined FICO. Um, after a year and a half at Navasis, it was fun and stuff, but it felt like there wasn't really a great opportunity for growth. So I applied for FICO. I had no idea what corporate finance was. You know, I, I worked in the stock market. Before, you know, before that, I worked in strategy consulting. So I went into corporate finance and at FICO, and I absolutely loved it. It was like the first day, just being thrown into the fire, um, working on a. I still remember working on a three million dollar deal for a very large European telco. Uh, structuring that. And uh, I just, I fell in love with corporate finance and I was at FICO for five years. I, I supported regions such as Europe and Asia, and you were on the front line structuring deals, multi-million dollar contracts and, and all that stuff. So that was, that was a really great time during that period. But then eventually, as we talked about the financial crisis hit mm-hmm. and it became really tough. Mm-hmm. I just want to quickly touch on, could you explain the difference between corporate finance and the stock market work? Like, what is the main difference? Like, it's very clear that there are two different job responsibilities, but how different is the work? Yeah. So in the stock market, you're kind of looking at the stocks, the value of stocks. Are they going to go up or down? You know, you look at macroeconomic uh, factors, you look at company factors, but at the end of the day, you don't control the decisions of where their revenue is going or how their expenses are, right? Um, same thing with you know strategic consulting, right? Um, we were just a third party that would give them advice on what to invest in or maybe not to invest in as far as their own projects. But we weren't the ultimate decision makers there. In corporate finance, what I love is that you are the ultimate decision maker. So there are a lot of projects I worked on, such as do we enter China and how? Do we enter Brazil? South Africa? What about different products? Do we start investing in those? How do we go to market? And it's really cool because you can make, you can do all the, all that analysis. You can make the decision. You can change the trajectory of revenue and expenses. And ultimately you can impact the stock price. So that's why I've always really uh, loved corporate finance because I feel like uh, you have more influence. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So when you're in the world of corporate finance, you're in the world of stock market, you're usually doing a lot of analysis. In school, students usually learn different various methods of valuation. Do you want to talk about a couple of valuation methods that you found most helpful? Were they taught to you in school or not? And how did that valuation help you at your job? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So, you know, I still remember, you know, CAPM and WAC. <laughs> Everybody understands that. Hopefully, risk-free rate, beta, just go grab a beta from a stock price, right? Yeah. And the risk premium. Um, what you... What you eventually learn in the real world is that becomes less important. That's that's the truth is you really look at something and say, how do we enter, let's say, China? Okay. So what you need to do is from there, you got to understand is what are your target accounts? How often do they buy? How are you going to penetrate that? How are you going to staff and go to market? And eventually you get into cash flows, right? And you got to understand the riskiness of the cash flows to do that. And when you're trying to get a discount rate, I can't just go and go grab a beta or something like that. You got to, is this, you got to understand the risk, right? Is this high risk cash flow? Therefore, maybe a 20% discount rate. Does this seem medium, maybe 15 and maybe low, a 10% discount rate. And at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes down to strategy and gut instinct and stuff like that. Um, I still think that these tools are good to know. You should know CAPM, you should know WAC, you should know how to get beta. You should understand ultimately that the purpose of a discount rate is to uh, discount the riskiness of the cash flow. Okay. So just because you think you're developing something similar as Apple, that doesn't necessarily mean that you use the same beta as Apple because your technology might be a lot newer, right? In development and market acceptance. So you should add a huge risk premium to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important that you say that and you tell the world about it because while your school and university teaches you all the basics, like the different cap and back, everything you just said, when you get into the real world, work is actually so much different than that. And I'm sure you agree with me on that. Yeah, 100%. I think it's always good to know that, know the fundamentals, mm-hmm. but you know, you, you know, you're just learning the, the foundation, right? There's so much more to put up the whole house and make really big uh, decisions, right? And ultimately, it's going to be how do we, how is our product? How do we go to market? How do we close deals and how do we staff? And it's really the cash flow part of it, the top, the numerator, that becomes the most important, less on the denominator or the discount rate. A couple of podcasts ago, we were talking about culture, and my guest, Miguel Angel Lopez, told me that it's so important that you understand the culture, but you also connect the dots. And I think that is applicable in this case as well. When you are in the financial markets, knowing your fundamentals is important, but knowing how to connect those dots while valuating a company is even more important. Yeah, 100%. That being said, something interesting that we were talking about a couple of days ago was recurring revenue. And I want to touch on that on the podcast. Let's start off by just explaining what recurring revenue is. We'll get into the entrepreneurship side of it and we'll get to your job at Intuitive about it. Well, let's just start off what recurring revenue is. Yeah, and, and there's been a big focus on this over the last 10 years, right? But, you know, start thinking about uh, what's not recurring revenue. So if you go, you know, fly somewhere, right? So like Southwest, right? That's not recurring revenue. You go to McDonald's, right? That's not recurring revenue. So that means 
every day McDonald's has to work back work and try and get that customer to return, right. And keep buying and stuff like that. Um, which becomes less predictable, uh, recurring revenue. You can think of like gym memberships or insurance, uh, policies and stuff like that. That becomes more predictable, right? When somebody signs up for a one year insurance policy, you know what that revenue is going to look like. Uh, I think one of the most fascinating things is seeing how recurring revenue has transformed into the software industry. So back when I started at FICO in 2004, a lot of their revenue was not recurring revenue. It was more buy software. We deliver it to you. You pay us $1 million up front, and that would be most of the revenue timing. Uh, and now everything is shifting to more recurring revenue, such as online, you pay $10 per month for this, Right. And uh, that becomes more predictable. And what's happening is if you look at over the last five or six years, these software companies with recurring revenue, I believe their market return is about 1100% or three to four X uh, NASDAQ. Um, so it's, it's a really great way to get customers in, keep them paying every month and extract value out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, while you mentioned a little bit about why it's so important, do you want to dive a little deeper? Why it was so important for you to learn this at Intuitive, if, if I named the company correctly. Yeah, so at, in, at Intuit, um, they were one of the first ones to actually really move to a recurring revenue. So I'm not sure, uh, maybe people in the audience have heard of TurboTax, right? Where you can do your tax QuickBooks, where you can do your kind of accounting uh, for small businesses. So let's just take QuickBooks. Uh, uh, legacy or desktop software, someone would pay, let's call it 200 bucks for the software. They pay for it once, they put it in their computer, and they'd use it for on average about three years. Okay. What, what Intuit did is they then changed this to more of an online where people could access QuickBooks through the internet or online, and let's call it for 10 bucks per month. Well, over that same three-year period, that value is 360 bucks versus 200 Secondly, the barrier to entry or the initial purchase is only 10 bucks the first month versus 200 up front, right? So the barrier to entry or the first payment is much lower. They're able to get a much larger uh, lifetime value as well. And what the customer receives as well is by being online is to get the latest and greatest updates. Mm -hmm. So if a new version comes out a year later, they get access to that. On the desktop, they, they would not. So now the customer is more likely to stay on because they're getting the best product continuously uh, mm -hmm. through that period. Yeah, I think recurring revenue is taking over the market. Uh, to give some quick examples, Netflix, Amazon Prime are all the biggest examples of recurring revenue because they want to retain more and more customers. So that is something that everyone should keep in mind as they become an entrepreneur. And as I mentioned the word entrepreneur, I want to talk about CSG. So let's let's start by talking about how how you found Syzygy and do you want to explain the problem, the solution, and what is Syzygy? Yeah, sure thing. So in 2019, you know, I found myself for the first time having to look for a job, the first time in 17 years. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's still this resume and job board. You know, I felt really lonely and powerless through that journey. So, you know, you start looking out, looking at what's out there, and there's really nothing but besides that. And I'm like, can we build kind of the best digital platform for job seekers to get hired? Because here's a problem statement. It takes the average person five months, 200 applications and 10 interviews to get a job offer. And uh, that, that's, that's a long time. That's, that's frustrating. So 
for Syzygy, you know, we're out there building the best digital platform. So you start taking a step back and you, and you look at what are the biggest pain points? Well, I can tell you one, I think everybody knows it is the resume. I, I've seen over 10,000 resumes over the last year and, you know, they generally look the same. People might say they have Python, you know, great. So does the other 150 resumes, right? Or, hey, I'm certified in Google Analytics. Guess what? There's 80 other people that say that. So one of the things is, uh, is how can you create consumable digital content? How can you take someone through an experience of showing them how you web scrape or how you think about UI UX with call to action buttons? Or, you know, how do you think of Google Analytics and increasing conversion or lowering bounce rates and stuff like that? So, you know, for me, I would be in interviews and people would say, hey, what do you know about ARR? That's a common uh, recurring revenue term. And I would try and, you know, say whatever I can in 20 seconds. Well, now I can take somebody through an experience for like two minutes and show them, here's how I think of ARR. Here's how I think of, you know, gross, you know, revenue retention rates and all that stuff. And I feel like I'm able to market that skill a lot better. And then the, the person who's viewing it understands my aptitude soft skills a, a lot more. So that was number one is taking bullet points and turning them into consumable digital content. Number two is a lot of people just hit easy apply, right? Easy apply, easy apply, easy apply. So we live in a, in a paradigm right now where it's high quantity, low quality. On average, we're seeing 250 job applications. That's tough to go through. Um, so how, how, you know, let's look at iTunes, right? When you create, you create different playlists for your friends versus your family, right? We should be able to configure a job application and personalize it to the viewer. So we have something called job pitches where you can go into your digital content, your digital content library, start selecting which content you want to package for that job. And also, if you want to, you can put a summary video or intro video. A lot of companies want to know, why do you want to work here? What do you know about us? Do you like our uh, mission, vision, and values? Um, so you can start just configuring all these different job pitches for each company much like an iTunes playlist. And what that does is it creates a unique immersive experience for the viewer, right? Imagine if you were hiring and you had 200 resumes that were all standard and then someone else created digital content uh, showing the skills they have as well as their passion to come to your company. You're going to be compelled to look at it. Another thing is, you know, it's tough to organize your job search, right? A lot of people don't know how many jobs they apply to and all that. So, you know, we have a CRM, we call it for job seekers. You can know how many jobs you've applied to, how many have been viewed by the company. That's always a pain point. Did they see it? Uh, how many went into interviews and how many went into offers? And within each one of those cards, you can put a lot of information like the contact information of the company, maybe some task and all that stuff. So this is a great way to organize your job search. Also, what is your application to interview conversion? What is your interview to job offer conversion? How does that rank to your cohort? What are some recommendations we can give to you to increase uh, the conversion percentages? Super interesting. And you know, the reason I say that is because the way people usually tend to get hired is when they tend to stand out. And usually stu students these days do a lot of presentations. They put on an entire pitch, a video pitch to, to attract the employer. And I think with CCG, you're making it a norm which is, which is great work. Yeah, you're hundred percent. And, um, 
I, I think that's the right way to go is to find a way to stand out, right? And some people create their own websites or maybe create a standard video. And I think that's a great start. Um, and what can help really help is when you supplement it with content that shows that you have the skills, right? Where you can personalize it a little bit more. So a lot of times people send me to their website, say, hey, check this out. And I go there and it, I, I just kind of get a little lost, right? What am I supposed to look at? Can you like take me through this experience, you know? So what we're trying to do is have people uh, create consumable content, personalize it to the company and take them through experience, have the candidate have the voice to tell their own story and present themselves. Well, no, it's a great initiative and best of luck for it. Let, let's talk about your entrepreneurship journey. I know you just started one and a half years ago, but what has been one of your biggest learnings as an entrepreneur? Oh gosh, where to begin? <laughs> so you're correct. So in September of 2019, I, I signed some papers to incorporate Delaware, but that's not really when it started. It probably started right at the beginning of 2020, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know what? I'd probably say you know one of the first mistakes I made was um, maybe using a technology team that were friends out of a company I used to work at, right? Um, mm -hmm. I was kind of nervous. There's there's development teams everywhere. I didn't you know I'm not a technical founder. So I was using some friends out of, out of, let's out of a company I worked at and, you know, it just didn't work over the next two to three, the first two to three months. I guess where I was happy is I kind of identified that pretty quickly and was able to pivot. Um, so that was a really big learning. I think 2020 was tough on a lot of companies, right? <laughs> do you go pedal to the metal or do you kind of coast and figure things out? And, you know, I, I look back and say, wow, I wish we would have gone faster through that period. It was very, there was a high degree of uncertainty, but at the same time, what we were able to do is really build a pilot, a good pilot program. We had a really great summer internship and we learned a lot from our users on how, on their pain points and how best to build our platform out. So while I always want to go, you know, faster <laughs> and stuff like that. I think it was, it paid off because we might've gone a different direction on building out the platform than, than where it is today. Well, you said you started off in 2020 and with 2020 started the coronavirus pandemic. So obviously my next question is going to be, how did it feel starting a company during a pandemic? Yeah. You know, I think it was tough. You know, it's one of those where in a business, I think, you know, you have two pedals, right? You have a gas pedal and a brake pedal. And I'm happy that we didn't hit the brakes. You could have just hit the brakes and say, hey, let's go look at something else, right? This isn't working. You know, I think sometimes, I, I think, you know, what we did is maybe take the foot off the accelerator a little bit and coasted probably for three or four months. Um, so I, I think that was the right decision. And now it's, now we're, <laughs> now we're going really fast right on the gas pedal. Um, but, you know, there, there was that stuff out there where you look and you go, wow, you know, what should I be doing? But let's, let's go to the start of this podcast, right? So during the dot-com bubble, what you notice is, you know, either you can be like every, everyone else where all of a sudden you reduce, you reduce your spend and all that stuff, or same thing in the financial crisis, you know, reduce your staff, or sometimes when people zig, you zag. And you look at all the great companies that came out during the financial crisis, right, where they first were founded during that period. And to me, it felt like a great time for us to, for our company to actually take that next step. So one thing is like with virtual interviewing, it's very hard when a resume is exchanged, only, is the only piece of information exchanged before an interview. When people actually exchange digital content beforehand, the interview is way better. 
So we felt like, hey, let's take a little bit slow, but we felt like the company was in a much stronger position as we exit uh, the pandemic. During a pandemic, you have two options. You either hit the pedal or hit the brake. It was a very similar experience for me as well. I actually ended up diving into three startups, if I can say so. And, and the courage show came out of it, uh, the one that pushed through. But I think, no, it's, it's super important that you use your time to, to the maximum. That being said, don't exhaust yourself, but it's so important to keeping yourself busy and something will come out of it. Yeah, totally agree with that. Uh, we kept busy and, you know, I think one of the best things that happened uh, is we, you know, we were only going to have two interns and then we ran a really big internship program and, you know, all the, all the wonderful students were kept busy and provided so much value uh, for us and stuff. So I agree during these periods when it's slow, things happen and just try new things and stay busy. Um, I can't believe it's been almost a year since, you know, started. Well, no, um, it's just been a year and there's a long, long journey to go for you with CCG. But the next question I have for you is, did that 17 years of leadership experience in, in the technology industry help you with starting your own company at, with CCG? Yeah, I think especially my time at FICO. So, you know, it's very important when you come into finance, right? You think, hey, I just put together a great model, right? Or, hey, I know I know MPV and discount cash flow than anyone else, you know, but, you know, the, the finance field has evolved a lot. So, you know, the first thing was business partnering. Um, how do I go work with, you know, a chief technology officer? They don't really want to hear about you know, how I got the beta, right? Or something like that. <laughs> um, they want to understand it's like, hey, how can I get resources and stuff like that and staff? And how do we build the product faster? You go to sales and, you know, they want to go enter into new markets or change their sales strategy a little bit. So um, you go into service delivery, you go into like legal and all that stuff. So one of the first, one of the cool things that at FICO that I was able to do was really get my hands into a lot of things outside of finance. And what that did is made me a stronger finance business partner. I think th that is very important for somebody early on in their career is to, you know, try and make, try business partnering is huge, right? And try and put yourself in their shoes. How can you give them value? They don't want to just see 20 pages of reports, right? They want insights to be able to run their business or their part of the business better. I think the second biggest thing that really helped me out for entrepreneurship was dealing with customers. So at FICO, you know, I structured and signed all the deals. I also traveled around the world and met with customers and saw how did they perceive the software? What were their pain points? What was their ROI on buying the software? And by doing that, it made me a stronger finance person. So I think uh, if I only stuck to finance and only stuck to sending out reports or preparing models, uh, it would have been a lot harder diving into other things like product development, sales and marketing, legal, dealing with customers and all that. It it really helped. Well, I'm sure that a lot of employers are going to hop onto this trend and they're going to be looking forward to students sending in their application through Syzygy. Being in the current development space myself, I can see how important that is. But it's it's been a great podcast, Tony. We've learned so much today. Uh, we've touched on stock market, corporate finance, 
entrepreneurship. We've touched so many different avenues. I just have one last question for you. And, and you might want to think about this. What is, <laughs> what is one advice you wished you had received before you started your career journey? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's funny because you didn't send me questions beforehand, right? So this is just <laughs> live. <laughs> but um, I would tell you is I really felt like my career had to be perfect. Every decision had to be perfect. And it was all mapped out and I couldn't make any mistakes. And I would tell you that I felt like my career, I was kind of perfect. And some things are set up for you and sometimes they don't happen, right? And you're surprised and stuff. And what you realize when you look back and you go, wow, I just spent 15 years with this plan and it didn't work out. Should I have listened to other job offers or opportunities and stuff like that? So I, I think for me is I was back, you know, in my era, you didn't really want to job hop too much. I, my first job I was in for a year, my second job was a year and a half and, and stuff. So I became a little bit worried about that. And I think when I look back, there was maybe some opportunities to join instead of being at a billion dollar company, joining maybe a hundred million dollar company growing quickly, maybe it was a parallel move from vice president to vice president, but the opportunity that it would open up would have been huge because it's in a, you know, it's different when you're in a public market versus, you know, private or VC backed and stuff like that. So I think the biggest advice is, you know, go out and have fun in your career and go do things that you think, you know, that makes sense. Don't always worry about what other people are going to think when they look at your resume or your professional journey. Okay. I recently did a career speech on my YouTube, which is coming up in a couple of days. So before this podcast releases, one thing that I say in that motivational speech is that a lot of times we let the society decide what we have to do. And I think that hampers our success. And I think everyone should hear that, that, hey, do what's best for you. Because the only way to achieve excellence is when you listen to yourself. No, that's fantastic. I can't wait to check that out. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours. That means a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tony, once again, for coming onto the podcast. It's, it's been lovely talking to you. I'm sure this is going to help a lot of financial professionals, upcoming entrepreneurs. You've touched on a lot of current topics today. So thank you so much. And I hope to stay in touch. Thanks so much. That was awesome. I hope you enjoyed this week's career discussion. Let me know your thoughts in the comment section. Also, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Your support means a lot.